Hi, this is Beth AQ, and this is the podcast of The Glass House, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. The Glass House is a space for spoken word artists, poets, sound makers, audio storytellers, emerging cultural leaders, thinkers, writers, and anyone who celebrates story as a means of self-expression, self-representation, and community building. I hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at BethanyAQ or the Triple R website. Everyone in the world has gone to bed one night or another with fear or pain or loss or disappointment. And yet each of us has awakened and arisen. There is the nobleness of the human spirit. Despite it all, black and white, Asian, Spanish, Native American, pretty, plain, thin, fat, vowed or celibate, we rise. Triple R. I begin by acknowledging that I broadcast on the stolen, unceded lands of the Wurundjeri and Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. I acknowledge these communities as the first storytellers of this land and acknowledge the ongoing violence of colonisation in this country and around the world on First Nations communities and pay respects to elders past and present and extend that respect to any First Nations people listening in this afternoon. I'd also like to extend my deepest respects to the family and friends of Auntie Tanya Day. Yesterday would have been her 58th birthday, but instead she was taken too young and died in police custody in 2017. And yesterday it was pretty magical to see my feed lit up in pink, uh, her favourite colour, uh, to acknowledge her birthday and to acknowledge her and her family who have fought tirelessly for justice and police accountability in the years since. If you do want more information on that, you can check out uh, at Justice for Tanya Day on Instagram. It always was and it always will be Aboriginal land. Coming up on the program today, in just under 10 minutes, I'll be joined by podcast producer Laura Uden. Uh, who's one of the many that have worked on a new podcast called The Collection. And now it's an audio series that takes you back of house at Darwin's Museum and Art Gallery of the Northern Territory. And it's a very interesting series that covers everything from crocs to giant clams to cyclones. And a little bit later on in the program, I'll be joined by Emerging Writers Festival Artistic Director Ruby Rose Pivot Marsh, 
She'll be coming back on the show. It's always lovely to have her on the program. This time we'll be chatting about a new initiative that the Emerging Writers Festival have put together called At Home Residencies. And they're giving four emerging writers the chance for this virtual residency, which includes uh, support and an honorarium to support their writing. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. The Collection is a new podcast that takes you back of house at Darwin's Museum and Art Gallery of the Northern Territory. Uh, the Collection is a podcast that's created by Story Projects for the Museum and Art Gallery of the Northern Territory. And we're going to take the trailer now. Um, and on the other side of this, we'll be joining. Uh, we'll be joined by one of the producers from the project. Ninety-four percent of the accommodation in Darwin was destroyed. So there was nowhere to live. There was no power. There's no water. There's no electricity. There's nothing. And the workers still, even in those conditions, came to the museum that day and tried to save what was there. <laughs> From specimen jars, backstore drawers and eskies, we bring you The Collection, a podcast about unusual objects and how they came to be in the Museum and Art Gallery of the Northern Territory. Sweetheart was 5.1 metres long, which is a pretty decent size for a crocodile, but it wasn't exceptional. But what was exceptional was his behaviour. Moving down, we've got the photography room with the X cage, we call it, where we put all the artworks in in preparation for photography. Giant clams are so special because they are very, very, very brightly coloured. Magnificent blues, greens, purples. And then if you go down a little bit further, there's the visual art store, which is all the beautiful paintings. It looks like an alien or it looks like a deep sea creature. But in real fact, it's actually living a few hundred metres out the front of most people's doorsteps in Darwin. The Collection. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or for more info, head to magnt.net.au forward slash The Collection. You are listening to Triple R, just a little teaser there of new podcast called The Collection. Joining me on the line now, I do have one of the producers from the project, Laurie Uden. Thank you so much for your time this afternoon. Oh, hi, Beth. No problem. Thanks for having me. Um, Laurie, I'd love if you could perhaps start by telling us how you first came to this project. Yeah, sure. Well, it was actually... I was like late last year before the word COVID had ever been muttered before and um, we were approached by the Museum and Art Gallery of the Northern Territory, which is commonly called Magnet up here, um, to actually do a, a couple of live shows um, in the sort of back areas of the museum at, the, at night time. And so that sort of morphed as, as the months went on and we got to, you know, March and April um, and we started to think about, well, perhaps a live event um, is not going to happen. Um, however, we had some funding from uh, Science Week, National Science Week, um, 
from the Northern Territory here. And so we had a look at, well, what else could we do to, to share stories uh, about the collection at the museum? And um, that's how we came about doing a podcast. Mm. I love that you're able to kind of shift the live events to becoming an audio project. I suppose in terms of planning, what was that uh, change like? Well, I think like everyone, you know, as artists and as producers, everyone was sort of scrambling to 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 be innovative and, and adaptive and um, find ways that we could still present work um, to an audience. Uh, and, you know, Story Projects had done podcasts in the past um, that had been really successful. So it was quite a natural leap. Um, and we'd been for a tour around the, the back stores uh, of the museum and there's so many stories. It's amazing as you you wander along the, the aisles of jars and big eskies full of ethanol with strange creatures in them and, and boxes full of bones. And, you know, so we knew that there was um, stories out there uh, and, you know, the, the challenge was to, to mix stories and science to create something that um, is really fascinating for everyone, not just people that are, you know, really into science. Mm. Yeah, that was something I was thinking um, as I was listening to the podcast is just the, I suppose, the range um, that you kind of cover. But how did you go about, I suppose, curating what you would put into the podcast? Because, yeah, as you said, there's, I can imagine there's just so many things there to, to draw from. Yeah, that's right. We did. Well, we went for, as I said, a few wanders around around the back stores and, and we noted down um, lots of different stories um, that could possibly make the podcast. But then we had a look at the National Science Week theme, which was around oceans and deep blue. So um, we sort of felt like all of these stories had something to do with, with the ocean and, and water. And um, we thought, you know, possibly in the future, if there's other other seasons, we might head down into the desert. But we, um, we sort of concentrated around the top end, around the ocean. Um, and these were the stories that, that came to light. Um, one of the big things we were trying to do was, um, you know, there's some quite famous items like Sweetheart the Crocodile in the museum up here. Um, and everyone sort of knows the story, um, if you've been to the museum, about how the crocodile um, sort of came to be there. But we wanted to get behind that story. And, and that episode one is about um, the taxidermist, um, and how he ended up having this massive crocodile that, that he had to stuff and he had no idea how. So he had to had to learn by sort of writing to people all around the world and finding someone that had stuffed an animal like that before. So it was just about getting getting behind the scenes um, into the backstores and getting those behind the scenes stories that we were interested in. Mm. Yeah, I definitely loved learning about a Sweetheart the Crocodile. It was not something that I um, knew much about before. Um, I also love, I suppose, just in that first episode, uh, how the taxidermist talks about, uh, I suppose, his craft as this melding of science and art, which I really feel like this whole podcast is is all about. It's kind of bringing that the craft of storytelling to the science behind some of these objects. Um, I'm interested if you can tell me a little bit more about, I suppose, the process of, of making it. I know that it would have been a little bit different making something like this during a pandemic. Can you can you talk me through that? Yeah, it was different, and you know we had to be really careful. Um, you know, with with simple things like actually recording someone and making sure that 
that person um, was sitting 1.5 metres away as I was, you know, trying to record and, you know, wandering around the bush. Um, in that first episode, we, we actually record with a crocodile specialist um, at his property in Humpty Doo, which is um, about an hour out of the main centre of Darwin. Um, and as we sort of wandered around his property, there's a... Um, a crocodile uh, area, I suppose it's all it's all safe. So there's fences and what have you, but there's some massive crocodiles in there that um, that he has there. And so just sort of making sure that as we were walking along, you know, I was keeping my distance. And yeah, it was difficult. And the other thing was the museum was closed at the time, so we couldn't go in and get some of the recordings of. Um, perhaps people wandering through the museum that we would have liked to have got. Um, so there was some challenges, but, um, you know, we, we got around them, which is great. Mm. Um, and I know that you worked um, alongside another producer as well as, I suppose, a team. you got your sound engineer, your executive producer. Can you tell us a little bit about, I suppose, the ins and outs of, of the, the team behind this project? Yeah, sure. Well, it's actually quite interesting because I don't think we actually ever got together as as a group um, in the whole time that we were producing this podcast. So Cinema Nippard is, is my co-producer and she's actually based in New South Wales. Um, and we have James Mangahi, who's um, a fabulous um music producer and he did the music composition. He's here in Darwin and along with our mixer, um, Hamish Robertson, but we didn't actually all get together. So we used online, we used platforms, like we used Slack um, to chat all, you know, all day, every day, um, and we used some other audio platforms to share, um, you know, the rough cuts of the audio, um, bring the music in. So, yeah, it was it was all done basically online, other than myself doing the actual um, interviews face-to-face with, with actual people, not, not over the internet, because we've been really lucky up here in, in the Northern Territory um, in that we've, we've had very little um, cases of COVID. So, you know, we, we have had more freedom than, um, than you've had down there in Melbourne um, and Victoria. So, yes, it, it has been difficult, but we, we've managed to, to do it all um, sort of over the, the platforms and the amazing sort of assets that we have at our disposal these days. Yeah, it is exciting and I hope that, um, I suppose beyond COVID, that it changes the way that people think about working and, you know, having production teams, as you said, interstate and, yeah, just having all of the technology that we have available to us to be able to create, um, you know, full works like this. It's, um, yeah, I think it's really exciting and, and hopefully a, a silver lining um, um, of this year. Um, mm, mm. I'd love to talk a little bit more about the the episodes and kind of what went into them. I'd oh. love to play a uh, a clip uh, from episode three. Uh, it's called Seven Seasons and Very Rare Fish. Do you mind just, I suppose, contextualising this before we play the snippet? Yeah, sure. Well, we were really interested in, um, I guess, what is unique to the Northern Territory. And, and one of the things that is unique up here in Darwin is that we don't have four seasons. We don't have winter, spring, um, summer and autumn. We, A lot of people up here refer to two seasons, the wet and the dry. But actually the Larrakia people up here who are the traditional owners of, of the land that Darwin's on now, they recognise seven seasons. Um, and we were sort of playing around with that and then we were really interested in, from the museum's perspective, um, you know, how... 
they um, utilise this amazing wealth of information that the Larrakia people have to help with um, their specimen collections. Um, and so we had a chat to, to Gavin Daly, who's the Senior Collections Manager at the museum, and he sort of talked us through what, what goes into going out and collecting specimens um, in a, you know, a remote and um, you know, sometimes dangerous place that the outback of the Northern Territory can be. And we also had a wonderful chat to um, the very generous um, Lorraine Williams, who's a Larrakia elder and also an ethnobotanist. Um, and she was just amazing with her knowledge. Um, and what they both kept coming back to was the importance of Western scientific knowledge, um, working with uh, Indigenous knowledges and the two knowledges working together to, in the future, um, to overcome things like climate change um, and to be able to go, you know, allow people to go out onto the country and to safely collect things and do it in a respectful um, way that, you know, is okay. So it, it was a really fascinating um, episode to, to record and to produce. If you have just joined us, we are chatting with Laurie Uden about the Collection podcast. Uh, it is a new podcast uh, that takes you out the back of Darwin's Museum and Art Gallery of the NT. We're going to take a snippet now from episode three called Seven Seasons and a Very Rare Fish. I'm always mindful that what the old people taught me, so you can hear the old people's voice the way they say, that the flower was actually calling the season. And there's all laws about how we um, eat those fruit and we teach our children not to be greedy. And there's all these things about even when we harvest turtle eggs to take some and leave some. But it's all of those, those stories that you can't really capture on one seasonal calendar. There could be an entire book actually written. The NT is a fairly special place to be collecting. There's a lot of new species to be discovered up here, but it's also quite difficult in the terms of um, some of the areas are very remote and hard to get to um, and can be quite expensive, especially once you start talking about using helicopters and things like that. You're listening to Triple R, just a little snippet there from the new podcast, The Collection. Um, Laurie, I'd love to talk, I suppose, a little bit about what you were saying before, how this project was, I suppose, reimagined to to be an audio project after, you know, COVID and everything that's happened this year. Do you feel like with, you know, doing an audio project, you're able to engage in new audiences uh, that perhaps wouldn't be able to, um, you know, you wouldn't be able to engage with before? Yeah, no, that was the, um, the really exciting part of it for us. And I think the exciting part going forward in the future as well, um, you know, it was a really sort of innovative and creative way that, um, that we were able to, um, to shift from, from one form of, um, of theatre, I guess, and into, an, into the audio space. Um, and it has meant that rather than perhaps we might have had 500 people see, see the live shows, um, you know, this can go out to um, people all over Australia, all over the world if they're interested. Um, you know, the Museum and Art Gallery of the Northern Territory is really unique. It's the northernmost museum um, in Australia, and, and we do have a lot of... Um, unique things here that they have to deal with from cyclones through to, you know, really strange pests to, um, you know, storm surges. There's all sorts of things that we have up here that are really unique. And, and we also have, um, you know, 
an amazing blend of cultures um, and the artefacts and the artworks and the items that are in the museum really reflect that. So it's really exciting to be able to to share what life is like here in the Northern Territory by sharing um, what the items are and the stories behind them um, from the museum. Um, I think one of the the curators um, sort of says it best um, in one of the podcasts he talks about um, that museums are like libraries but for, for items rather than books and, and that's what it's like. It's like this big... You know, there's thousands or millions, perhaps, um, items in the collection that no one ever gets to see because they're in the back stores. Um, so there's only a you know really small percentage um, that are in the front of the museum. But the beauty of this is that we can tell the stories of all sorts of um, items from the collection and it can go to people all over the world. So, yeah, we thought it was a great outcome. And it almost feels like these stories could be, you know, could accompany the objects that are there. You know, it, it, the, these stories kind of feel timeless to um, the objects that you're talking about. Do you see that that's something that, uh, you know, the museum will uh, incorporate uh, going forward? Yeah, that's a nice thing to say. Thank you. Um, yeah, I hope so. And, um, you know, we really feel like it's the tip of the iceberg that, um, yeah, there's a million stories from, from the museum. So, you know, we, we now um, there's this... I, I can just tell you about a couple of them. There's this story about um, this pygmy hippo that um, used to wander around the banks of the Daly River um, here in the Northern Territory until it was accidentally shot one day by someone that thought it was a wild pig. Um, and so, you know, as you're wandering around the back stores of, of the museum... Um, the collections manager, Gavin Daly, sort of said, oh, have you heard about the, the, the pygmy hippo? I'm like, what? What do you mean there was a pygmy hippo here in Australia? And, and he pulls out this box and he's the skeleton and the, the head and everything of this this pygmy hippo. So, you know, there's an amazing story there. I think there's, um, there's just so many of them that can be shared. Um, so we would love to, to sort of keep going. And, yeah, we hope that... Um, the museum can use these stories. Um, just in the last couple of days, they've been putting some um, communication out via Facebook and what have you um, as because they're searching for um, a rare fish that we have up here, which is um, featured in our episode five called The Worm of Death, and the fish is called a worm goby. Um, and he, they've only got one specimen of this um, worm goby, but they need three of them to um, classify it um, as a new species. So they've gone out to, you know, fishermen of the Northern Territory, which there's many, many, and says this is what it looks like. If you if you see any of these, please um, take a photo of it, or if, if you've hooked it and it's, it's dead, please pop it on ice and bring it into the museum. We'd really love to see it. Um, and so they, you know, can share this episode and they find out, people can find out more about this worm baby and why it's really important and, and what the story is behind um, this worm of death. So, yeah, we hope that the museum can use these episodes to present um, their items. Mm. That's really exciting and I do hope that it is something that's able to continue. I, I definitely feel as a Melbourneian, as somebody that, you know, has kind of been inside for a lot of the last kind of six mm. months you know, this podcast is a really great way to, you know, travel because the sounds of the NT are so rich, um, you know, when you go out and you kind of do these field recordings. So, yeah, it's been uh, it's been a joy to, to listen to and um, to learn all about, yeah, life up there and, and what you've got in the uh, in the museum and art gallery. So, yeah, thanks so much mm. for your, your time this afternoon and for your yeah, great work on this podcast. 
Oh, thanks so much, Beth. That's lovely. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. The Emerging Writers Festival is an organisation that is absolutely no stranger to this program. Uh, they have just announced that they have new Emerging Writers Festival at home residencies, which are going to see four emerging writers receive a fortnight's virtual residency, um, plus an honorarium to support their writing. And joining me to talk all about it now and welcoming her back to the glass house, I have Emerging Writers Festival Artistic Director Ruby Rose Pivot-Marsh. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks for having me again, Beth. It is always a pleasure uh, to chat to you. I think the last time that we spoke, um, you were just about to have EWF, but um, tell me a little bit about how the first, I suppose, completely virtual EWF went this year. Yeah, um, it was really full on in a good way. Um, I've been at EWF for a couple of years in various roles. It was really surprising to me how... Um, I don't know, you uh, you would think that a digital festival would be a little bit less involved somehow, but it was not. (laughs) Um, You know, like we don't have the physical sort of aspect of running around between venues, but it was still a lot of work, um, which is not surprising, but I think it was just, it was really different to what we've done done before. Um, But it was really great. Um, It went wildly well um you know we had more people than we could have expected I think attend and interact um and it was there was a lot of really beautiful sort of feedback um yeah and a lot of things to learn and take moving forward as you know we start to think about what the arts landscape is going to be like going forward because mm. I think, yeah, regardless of, you know, everything else, you know, with COVID, it kind of also, I think, opened up a lot of people's, as, as well as organisers, you know, perspectives on what accessibility means for any number of different reasons and people um, when it comes to accessing the arts. Yeah, absolutely. Do you feel like, I suppose, in that respect that EWF was able to engage with more artists that, you know, perhaps you hadn't been able to to engage with before? Yes, for sure. So there's, like, things of, you know, we were able to program artists who didn't, don't sort of aren't in Melbourne or people who are sort of interstate or indeed overseas, which is not something we really get to do unless we have, you know, support of a specific grant or something, which is, you know, obviously that we're always really grateful to and excited to receive, but, you know, we could program writers from elsewhere. Um, I think it also meant that people, I guess, saw, saw the opportunity for themselves to be in that space, whereas I think it can be a bit sort of intimidating or... Um, just yeah, not accessible in that you know it's physically it is in we're a national festival but it is in Melbourne. Mm. Um, so whether that means people travel in or yeah, I think I think it really did 
mean that we can engage artists that we don't normally get to work with or a wider sort of number of people outside of this Melbourne sort of bubble, yeah. Mm. Yeah, and I think it's no surprise that 2020 has been a really difficult year in many ways for emerging writers, for emerging artists. Mm. I'm interested to know your take on, I suppose, ways that you've seen the community around Emerging Writers Festival kind of shift and respond to new ways of working since, you know, since this kind of new world that we're living in. Yeah, I think there's been a lot of, I mean, I don't know if we talked about this last time, but, you know, um, a lot of people are sort of doing DIY stuff online, which, you know, people were already doing DIY and things like that, but it was just kind of much more, I think, on the radar of a lot more people that these events were happening or that these events were something that people could engage with. Um, seeing their readings that were happening on Instagram stories, or, sorry, like Instagram Live and things like that um, were really interesting. And then also it's funny, like, you know, connecting with people in other places um, has been really interesting and important. And it's funny because the literary community is wide, it's widespread, but it's still very connected. You know, we work with writers in other cities and other sort of regional places and I think that the digital space kind of allows for that a lot more and I think people have sort of realised. I think the other thing is, I'm just going on a tangent now, but like digital storytelling has always been really rich and it's always been a really wonderful place to play in and be in. But I don't know how many people, and I don't mean necessarily people who are creating it or people who are in, engaged in those spaces, but I think outside of that, people who work in the arts more broadly or who make decisions about what is considered art and what is considered valid and things like that have sort of maybe realised that there's more to the arts and more to the literature sort of sphere than just books, mm. which is, I love books, but, you know, like there's a lot more to all of this. And I think people are sort of starting to recognise that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that it's really exciting because hopefully it's almost like flattening the hierarchy in terms of like the entry, the the barriers to entry in, in the sense that, as you said, people are creating, you know, initiatives on their Instagram live and you know in the same way that kind of more established organizations are using similar channels mm-hmm. um yeah which is yeah I think it's yeah. really exciting and there's perhaps I don't know people are realizing the validity of the form yeah yeah I think so. um Ruby I'd love to chat about this new initiative that the Emerging Writers Festival have put together the at-home residencies. It's obviously mm-hmm. responding to, as we've spoken about, a time that is incredibly difficult for uh, emerging writers. Can you tell us a little bit about, um, I suppose, yeah, just the initiative and, and what um, prompted you to create it? Yeah, um, so I think it's really interesting um, that you mentioned sort of the barrier to, to entry in this space because after we announced it, um, that was some of the feedback that we got was like, this is um, much easier to 
to sort of fill out than, you know, a grant application. Like, this year has been hard for so many people, especially artists, especially, you know, in our context, writers, who have found that they're just... To stay afloat this year, people have been writing grant applications upon grant applications. I've been doing that, you know, in my practice outside of EWF, writing grant applications, not getting them, all that sort of stuff. And we just wanted to do something that was not so intense when it comes to, you know, people wanting to just even... That's why, so for starters, that's why we went for an expression of interest because we didn't want people to have to fill out a full-on, you know, application when we only have four of these to sort of award. Um, the idea was that it would be as simple and straightforward as possible for people to apply. Um, and the reason was exactly, you know, all these conversations that we've been having, not just today, but, you know, the whole year, is that art is really important, um, but artists don't often receive the recognition or support that they need to create. Um, yeah. It's kind of as simple as that, you know. The time is something that people are always after and always need in order to create. But at the moment, I think it's just, it's been really hard for people to find that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, this is so exciting because you are responding to, as you said, exactly what emerging writers or perhaps most artists need, which is, um, time and, and money and to be ap- to be able to create and put, um, you know, put energy and time aside to be actually able to work on their craft in a way that is sustainable and money makes things sustainable. Yeah, and I think part of it is also, you know, we don't often have this kind of money to spend. <laughs> so we were like, oh, cool, we can put something like that we can do outside. We wanted you to be able to, you know, do something outside of, the festival in terms of, you know, employing artists or, um, yeah, employing artists because we do employ artists, you know, to appear in the festival. Um, And this was one way that we could think of that we could do it, especially considering that we don't have the Digital Writers Writers Festival this year. Um, So we have that kind of like second half of the year time space to commit to this. And it was just, yeah, I think that that was just really what we wanted to do, we wanted something that was kind of like tangible but not expecting people to jump through hoops, I guess, to justify it. And the other side of that is it does mean that there's been a lot of really enthusiastic uptake, which is great but also is like, oh, wow, there are so many worthy people that now we have four of them. Mm. Well, I imagine that yeah. will be one of the hardest things. I, you know, I read that the residencies are open to writers of all genres, including poetry, fiction, nonfiction, script writing, uh, young adult essay, short stories. Can it, the list goes on. I suppose in yeah. in that vein, what are you looking for, and and how will you, I suppose, be able to to narrow it down to four? I imagine that will be the hardest part. Yeah, um, I think it's yeah that is the hardest part. Um, that is also you know, the hardest part of um, programming the festival as well. You know, we get we have um, open application, you know, open call-out applications every year and we get hundreds, you know, 
and every year it, you know, increases by how many, how many that we get. You know, we get hundreds and we have to read through them, which is not, you know, it's, our, it's a privilege, it's our job to read through all of those applications. Um, so I'm not saying, oh, we have to read through, but it's just like we read through these applications, we see how many people are worthy of this because it's not about who is more or less deserving. And I think that's the really hard part is knowing that but also still having to pick, like, a finite number of people. Um, so I guess what we are looking for with this residency specifically is, you know, people who we have, you know, left it open to emerging writers, but I think that the main thing that we're looking at is people who have got an established writing practice, whether that's, you know, what they do on the side and they have been they may not at the moment have work but have been working other jobs and things like that, um, but who have not had the time lately to dedicate to that practice because, you know, perhaps they are caregivers or perhaps they are parents um, who, you know, are homeschooling or, you know, um, just, you know, needing to get through it, you know, and not had the time to dedicate to their practice. And that's what we've seen has been happening across the board this year. So that's where we wanted to try and give some support and something back to the community that gives us so much. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that it's so exciting. I think when I saw the initiative, I was like, this is, you know, I think it's responding to exactly what so many artists need right now. And to my knowledge, it's, you know, the first of its kind that I've seen kind of popping up. So I, yeah, congrats to EWF and I urge any emerging writers that are listening to definitely check it out um, on the Emerging Writers Festival website. Um, Ruby, it's always a pleasure to chat to you. Thank you so much for your time this afternoon. Um, I do want to say really quickly um, that creators of colour Rest and Reflection residency was something that we really admired earlier this year. Um, so that was something that we kept in mind when we were putting together the application process. They awarded a very, it was a very just straightforward, um, yeah, low low pressure, low stakes thing. And that was kind of what we wanted to take forward, mm. take on moving forward. But yeah, thanks. <laughs> I love that. That's um, It's great to see that there are so, uh, I suppose, different initiatives that are kind of addressing the same need. But if you have been listening um, and you do want to find out a little bit more uh, about the EWF at Home Residencies, you can head over to their website to check it out. Uh, they have expressions of interest open um, right now and they close on the 20th of September. This is Beth AQ. Thanks for listening to the podcast of The Glass House a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at BethanyAQ or the Triple R website.